Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. I want to begin by asking this question this morning. What does your heart long for? What is it that is deep inside of you that you long for? I was reading once that talked about a book that was talking about the different spiritual disciplines. And one of the spiritual disciplines that it talked about was silence and solitude. And let's just be honest, in our world, in our pace of life, silence and solitude are not spiritual disciplines that we practice very often. And in his writing about these two disciplines, or these these connected spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude, he said this, the reason that most people don't practice silence and solitude is because they're scared of what they might hear. They're fearful of what they might find is really the longing of their heart. I wrestled back and forth with what to do for my introduction this week, and I actually have some thoughts written down that I'm just going to ignore. I read this morning the news that Matthew Perry had passed away. Did y'all read the news about that? Matthew Perry, who was one of the, the major stars of Friends, died at the age of 53, I believe it was, yesterday. If you don't know anything about Matthew, he's very famous, right? He's one of the major stars on Friends, and he had written recently a memoir of his life. And in his memoir, he pretty much laid it out the addiction of drugs that he faced for years and years and years. And what he says is that it was his longing to be noticed his longing for fame, his longing to be somebody that ultimately drove him to that place. When he realized that his funny humor and his fame didn't fill the longing inside, he began to turn to other things. And I wonder, church, this morning, If there are things in our life that we long for that simply can't be filled by things here on this earth. This morning, I've titled my message, Freedom Through Adoption. We sang a song about how we are free in Christ, that we are children of God, and You see, I believe that God created us with a longing that can only be filled in Him. In Him. The theme of our study through Galatians, really the title of our series as we've walked through this for months now, is this idea of freedom, that we are free in Christ. And so as we open the scripture this morning, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 4, 
And what I want us to do this morning as we read through this and we study through this is my my prayer is that somehow, someway, God would allow you to catch a real glimpse at the longing of your heart, what it is and what it is that you're leaning into to fill that longing and that you will stop leaning into that and you will lean into who you are in Christ, that you have been adopted, that you are free in him. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4, or excuse me, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, what, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. And so, church, don't miss this last sentence. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. As we read this text, what I want to do is I want to I point out four realities that we need to wrap our minds around to fully understand. You see, the truth of the matter is, for a lot of people, the idea of Christianity, the idea of going to church, the idea of religion is really rooted in this idea of wanting to be a good person. Everyone loves to be moral. We want to be moral people. We want to be good people. We want to raise kids who are moral. Church, let me make this statement. Morality is important, but let me follow that statement with this. Morality is not the goal. Now, that might make you feel uncomfortable, but you need to understand. Morality is not the goal. And here's why. Because we can be moral people longing for the wrong thing. Let me make this statement. Does God want us to be moral people? Yes. But does Satan want us to be moral people? I'm going to say yes, and here's why. Because if he can deceive you into thinking that your morality counts for something, then he has shifted your eyes in a longing for something that is not right. What we see in this text is that there is not freedom in morality, there is freedom in adoption. Now follow me along with this text, and I'll see if I can tie this together. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, we find first this powerful statement where it says this. Verse 26, excuse me. For in Christ Jesus, 
you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul teaches us, and he tells us in chapter 3, that it is through faith in Christ Jesus that we become sons of God. Last week, we talked about this idea of belonging to God, what it means to be in Christ, Christ in us, us in Christ. And it's rooted in this picture of sonship, that we are sons of God. Now, I mentioned, I think in this service, but not in the second service, so let me repeat. Now, there's some translations that say sons and daughters, but specifically in the Greek, it's sons only. Now, the reason our culture has added sons and daughters to the translation is because we want the women to feel included in this. You are included, ladies, in the room. Amen to that, right? But there's a reason that he says sons only in this text. We can't miss the power of what he's doing this. We are sons, watch this, in that time, women had no right to being heirs. There was no inheritance for women. And so the picture of what's happening is as you become a son of God, whether you're male or female, you become a son of God through this idea of adoption. And in this, watch this, you all become heirs. There was no place to become an heir and have an inheritance for women. But now you become a son, meaning this, that you have a place of an inheritance. And so we have this picture, this framework. And so in chapter four, he now begins to flesh this out. He begins to help us wrap our minds around it. And so let me walk us through this. And the first thing that we need to understand is this, that we need to remember our desperate state. We need to remember the desperate position, the desperate state in which we are outside of sons of God adopted into his family. He says in verse one, I mean that... The heir. Now, this this statement, I mean that, means that he's connecting dots back from the previous chapter. And you notice in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promises. So now he begins to flesh out and give meaning to what this being an heir really is about. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's giving us an illustration. He's giving us a picture of what he's talking about. The picture is this, that there's a young boy whose father is very wealthy. And this father has left an inheritance, if you will, for this son. Well, the father, he passes away and the son is taken under the guardianship, for many of you as parents, one of the things, one of the most horrific things that you have to do as a parent is sit down legally and, and, and write out if something tragic were to happen to you as parents, what would happen to your children? Who would take care of them? Who would be their guardian? If you have not done that, parents, you need to do that. And so this guardian now takes over, if you will, this son. There's an inheritance left for this son, but the inheritance would not be his until he reached a certain age. One of the things that we did in our family is we set out our kids. This is who they would go to, and um, the, the lots and lots of money that we have accumulated, which is not very much, would be left to them. But if something were to happen, they would not have access to that until they reached a certain age of adulthood. It would be in a trust until then. 
And what Paul is saying is that young boy, although he is an heir to the inheritance as a child, as a minor, in that situation is no different from a slave. He is still under the guardianship. He's still under the rules. He's still oppressed, if you will, and has no claim to the inheritance. He has no use with the inheritance. It's not his at that point. And so he uses this illustration, and then he goes into verse 3, and he explains what he means in the same way, he says. In other words, just as this was the case, that this young boy was no different than the slave, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What is the desperate state that Paul is reminding the Galatians and reminding us of? It's that we were and always are enslaved outside of Christ. We are always enslaved outside of of Christ, meaning this, anyone who is not in Christ, anyone who has not become sons of God, who is not adopted into his family, you are enslaved to something. Now, this phrase right here in verse 3, that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, is a very difficult phrase, all right? If you go and you open commentaries, what you'll find is that there are many different understandings of what Paul is talking about here. There's three primary, uh, really, meanings of that phrase, that word in that time period. One is the elementary principles of the foundations of life, earth, wind, water, and fire, okay? It's basically this, this fundamental building blocks, if you will. Another translation of that is that it's the elementary principles, like it's the elementary belief system of, of, of a religious system. In other words, some people interpret it as it's, it's the law. It's this, um, you're enslaved to the, the, the beginnings of what God was doing. He gave us the laws, the elementary uh, building blocks towards salvation. Another translation for this is that it, these elementary principles that, that you're enslaved to are literally spirits um, evil spirits that, that have enslaved and entrapped. And, and quite honestly, uh, we don't really know exactly what Paul meant in this. But here's what I began to realize, I began to think through in this, is it could be that he's somewhat referring to all three. What do I mean by this? Well, the Jewish people before Christ, before faith, were enslaved to the law. They were under the law. If you think back at verse 24 of chapter 3, it says that the law was a guardian holding them captive in prison until faith came. They were enslaved to it. And quite honestly, the law was good. It was given by God, and it was to lead to something. It was to lead to them recognizing their need for a Savior. But in that, it turned upside down, and it became a mechanism for them to think morality, goodness, Law-abiding people would then count for something. The Galatians were Gentiles. They were not given the law. They didn't have the law. But what were they before Christ? They were idolatry worshipers. They were idolaters. They, they worshiped the pagan gods of the time. Earth, wind, water, fire. There's, there's Greek gods that have been named after these. You understand this, right? And really what the picture of this is, is that before Christ, we all worship something. 
There are non-gods that we turn into gods. Every one of us do this. When we are not in Christ, when we have not been adopted into his family, we will find ourselves enslaved to worshiping something. Why? Because there are elemental spirits. There are enemies against us, led by Satan and his army of fallen beings, uh, spiritual beings that are uh, loosed out into the world, that are um, having dominion. They don't rule, but they have a sense in which they are at work in this world, deceiving distorting, showing themselves as light even though they are darkness. Scripture says that the devil can pose as an angel of light even though he's an angel of darkness. And so what he's done for all of time is he came alongside the Jewish people and said, this law that God gave, if you'll just lean into it a little bit more, do a little bit better at it, then you can be made right with God. He comes along to these idolatry worshipers and says, there's this longing inside of you. It's meant to be fulfilled in, in turning to the pleasures of, of lust and of self and of desire and of fame and power and prestige and work. You'll find yourself fulfilled in these things. And what happens is Satan distorts the longing inside of us that was meant for God. And he turns our hearts and he turns our lives to the things of this world. And he, all of a sudden, what does he do? He, we find ourselves enslaved to those things. And this is the picture of who we are outside of Christ, that anyone who is not in Christ is enslaved to something. Over in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, this is powerful. Jesus says to Simon, 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 behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Church, don't allow the enemy to deceive you. This is why it's important to look deep within your heart to see what it is that you're longing for. What is it that you're chasing after? What is it that you're pursuing? Because if it's anything other than who you are in Christ, you're enslaved and you're entrapped. See, what's powerful, though, in this statement that Paul is making is this. In verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, meaning this, before Christ, we were enslaved. It's past tense. It's past tense. In other words, there has been a moment in their life when they have been set free from this, that they are no longer slaves to these things. Listen, church, Satan wants to distort and he wants to deceive and he wants to do something in your life, pulling you away from who you are in Christ Jesus. But listen, he has no authority over your life. Martin Luther wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And one of the verses in that hymn, he says this, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Amen to that. And so as we recognize and remember our desperate state, church, remember that the desperate state you were in prior to Christ is that you were enslaved. But don't miss this, church, that those outside of Christ that we are neighbors with, that we are coworkers with, that we are family with, we need to remember 
that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning this. They're not evil, bad people. They're sinners, blinded, enslaved, and entrapped by the deception of the enemy where the longing that God gave them to worship him and to know him and to be in fellowship with him has been turned to something else. And God has given us the power. He's given us the ability to go to them and say, wake up. Let me give you the power of the gospel, of the glory of Christ that can remove those blinders so that you can be set free. Now the question becomes, what does it mean to be set free? Paul goes on. He begins to tell us in verse 4, we find ourselves enslaved. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, and this is the second thing, we need to remember our desperate state. Number two, we need to recognize God's perfect timing. Paul reminds us that God is sovereign, that God is in control. His perfect timing in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. This phrase is significant because it carries this weight that although Satan is the God of this age, God Almighty is the true God of eternity. Though Satan has some realm here and he's the God, lowercase g, of this age, the true living God is God for all of eternity. And so when the fullness of time had come, meaning this, that God has been at work from the beginning and nothing that Satan does or plans to do can thwart his plans. God will have his way. That he is sovereign, that his purpose of rescuing, redeeming, and restoring people to himself will happen. And at the right time, in history, the moment when it was set, the moment when God said from the beginning, this is how it's going to go down, he made it happen at just the right time. Church, this is good news. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. The time is at hand. Now, we sometimes we don't realize the, the ultimate reality of what God has orchestrated in all of this. Let me, let me say it this way. One of uh, the commentators I wrote laid it out very clearly, so I want to just articulate that. It was the right time theologically for Jesus to come to inaugurate the plan of redemption. It was the right time theologically. The entire period of the Old Testament was leading up to this moment. The promise given to Abraham had come. The law given to Moses had come. The law had been given to the people. They had heard it. They had tried it. And they had failed to live up to it. Over and over and over again. And finally it led to this place of complete rebellion and punishment. And they were taken captive. But what that did was it primed within them this understanding that they were enslaved to sin, enslaved to rebellion, and they were looking for a Messiah to rescue them. It was the right time religiously, not just within the Jewish people, but all of the world at that time. Rome had expanded. The world was riddled with pagan worship and idolatry. And the result was that the culture was at such a morality low that people looked around. They said, there's got to be more. They were hungry spiritually in this time. They were looking for something. And it was the right time politically. Rome had conquered many different regions of the land and 
In that, you've heard maybe of this phrase, Pax Romana. There was the the Roman peace that was made. And in that, all of a sudden, roads were able to be built across regions. And language was somewhat adopted across regions, which set up perfectly this idea that the gospel could go forth and spread easily. Couldn't do it before. So these are just a few of the microcosms of all the things that God was orchestrating for just the moment, just the right time for Christ to enter into the world in the form of a little baby boy. We're entering into the Christmas season, church, but understand Christmas didn't just happen. It wasn't just a coincidence. It was ordained and planned by God at just the right time in history. And church, don't you understand? Listen, let's, let's, let's bring this home for a minute. If God has that much control over all of history, don't you understand that he can and he will fulfill his purposes in your life? Don't give up on him. Don't get impatient with him. At just the right time, he can and he will accomplish the purposes that he has set out for you. But here's the question, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to be patient? Are you willing even more so to surrender to his perfect plan and will regardless of what that is? You say, yes, Lord, and your timing and your plan and your ways, I don't understand it. I'm gonna quit trying to fix it. I'm gonna quit trying to make it happen. Lord, in your time, God is sovereign. He can do this. So we go on, but in the fullness of time had come. What do we see in verse four? God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Number three is this. We need to rejoice in God's perfect provision. God sent his son. His son, Jesus Christ, was the perfect provision for our predicament. We are enslaved, and there is only one who can set us free from slavery. Notice what happens. God sent, God gave, God provided. What does this describe about who Jesus is? Why is he the perfect provision? Think about this idea that it says God sent, not God made his son. It means this. Jesus was preexistent. He was always there. He was not created at the birth at Christmas. The scripture says over in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, at creation, when God spoke creation into being, the scripture says that Jesus was right there with him. Nothing was made that was made without Christ being involved. He is preexistent. He is from all eternity. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is fully divine. But notice the other description that he says that he was not just sent, he was sent forth his son, born of woman. Born of woman. Paul is very specific in saying that when Jesus was born, he was born of woman. Why? This is important. Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. How is he both fully God and fully man? I don't know, but this is God, and this is what he can do. And so we see that he was fully human. He was born just like you 
and I, born of woman. There's another description. It says this, that he was born under the law. Jesus was a Jewish man who was born under the law, just as every other Jewish boy was born under the law before that. He was raised knowing the Torah. He was raised going to synagogue. He was raised knowing the law. The difference, though, between Jesus and the rest of us is that while he was born under the law, the law did not enslave him, but rather he fulfilled the law. He accomplished the law perfectly. And so all of a sudden, you put all these three things together, that he is fully divine, that he is fully human, and that he is fully righteous under the law, and then all of a sudden, watch this, church, he becomes the perfect gift, the perfect sacrifice that is required to set us free from our enslavement. One commentator said it this way. He says this, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son or divine, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. In other words, he needed to be all three of these. He's the only one who is perfect to fulfill and to purchase us for our freedom. So notice what he does. When the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law. Verse 5, to redeem those, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, the one came who was the perfect gift, the perfect person, the perfect Son of God, to be the one under the law who can redeem those who were under the law. This idea of redeeming is this picture of purchasing. It's a powerful picture. It's releasing and purchasing the freedom of a slave from their owner. It's paying the full price. And there was only one who was capable of doing that, and that is Christ. And he accomplished this. I love over in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is one of my favorite passages, verses to preach at Christmas because it says this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save. It doesn't say he might save. It doesn't say that he came to try to save. It doesn't even say that he came to save. It says that he will save his people from their sins. He will accomplish it. He has accomplished it. He was the perfect gift, the perfect one, the only one that could do it. And he did it. He redeemed us, setting us free. Number four and finally is this. We need to receive God's perfect gift. Receive God's perfect gift. You see... Many times we stop at this idea that Jesus redeemed us, that he purchased our freedom, that he set us free. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. And actually, what happens in our world is we think this. He has redeemed us. He has set us free. So then, therefore, we must go be moral people. This isn't what he says. Notice what he says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that, not that we can be moral people, so that we might what? Receive adoption as sons. The perfect gift, while redemption is good, adoption is better. Let me illustrate it this way. 
This is a morbid reality, but I want, to, I, want you to, I want your mind to go there because this was the culture of this time, the slave trade. The auction literally of, of human beings, terrible. People would purchase slaves in this setting. But I want you to picture, though, that there's this man that comes along who is the wealthiest man, the greatest privilege. He's the ruler of this massive kingdom. He shows up, and he looks around, and he sees these slaves in shackles. This is the picture of what we are in slave descent. And he looks upon them, and he says this. He says, I'm going to buy their freedom. I'm going to redeem them. This is the theological word that Paul uses. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to buy their freedom. Can you imagine the joy that sets in with those slaves as they hear this good news that their freedom is about to be purchased? And so the the transaction is paid and the chains are, are, are taken off and all of a sudden they're free legally for the first time in their life. And they think that, man, they're set free to just go. But the man, he says, hold on, I'm not done yet. You see, I'm not just going to set you free in your naked state unclothed and unnourished and unsatisfied and just trying to figure out where to go next. I am now about to do something beyond that you can imagine. I am now adopting you into my family. So you're not just free. Now you have a home. Now you have a father. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to clothe you. And I'm going to feed you. And I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you anything and everything that you need to make it in life. Oh, and guess what? My full inheritance, my full kingdom is yours. It's yours. Church, I need this to sink deep into the recesses of your heart and your soul to understand what it means to be in Christ Jesus. It's not about being a good person so that you can look right. It's all of a sudden, you are now an heir of the kingdom of God. You are an heir of God. You are a son of God. You've been adopted into his family. Can I get somebody to say amen, please? Listen, this is powerful. This is the beauty of what we have in Christ Jesus, that you have been adopted, and the implication of it is powerful. Notice what he says next. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Not be better. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. I am a slave entrapped with nothing, but all of a sudden I've been set free and now I have a father and so something wells up within me. Why? Because the spirit of God has been placed in your heart that leans in and says, Daddy, Father, I long for you. This is what it means to be adopted into the family of God. That the deep longing of our hearts ought to be crying out, Abba, Father, not because we're good, but because literally the Spirit himself has been implanted in you, in your adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. And this is the picture of what it means to be one in Christ. The union of Christ that we have. There is intimacy There is love. There is an understanding all of a sudden that God is not just judge, but God is now loving Father to you 
Not because you were worthy to be loved, but because he chose you. And he calls you his own. And so what does it say? Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. Let me finish with this this morning. Pastor David Platt, many of you may have heard of his name before. Wonderful pastor, wonderful preacher of God's word. He and his wife had adopted two children, one from China, one from Kazakhstan. And his young boy, at that time, his favorite word was why. You may have kids that just like to ask the word why. Why? 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 It's just why. Everything's why. He says that he was playing with his young son at one point, and he simply said, son, I love you. And naturally, with why being the famous question that he asked in return, he says, why? Well, why, Daddy? David Platt answers, because you're my son. To that, the son says, well, why, Daddy? And as he heard this question, why, it began to stir in his heart and to ponder this. Out of all the children in all of the world, why is he my son? He adopted him. Why is he my son? And as he began to think about the adoption process and all the time, the funding, the travel, the legal documentation, all the, the wondering if we're going to be able to get through this, he said that tears began to well up in his eyes as he looked at his son. And his son, he said, son, here's why you're my son. Because I wanted you. And because we came and we got you. That's why you're my son. Church, this morning, can we just remember why you are a child of God? Because God wanted you. And because God came to get you. And he set you free. And he didn't just set you free. He brought you into his family. And he implanted within you his spirit so that your spirit can cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the picture of the freedom that the longing of our hearts as adopted children cries out, Abba, Father, longing for his daddy, longing for her daddy, longing for her father. And God, we know that your love for us is real. God, help us to rest in that. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to long for that. Lord, I pray this morning that you would accomplish your purpose in your way this morning. Church family, let me ask you this. Do you know this kind of relationship with God? Where your spirit is crying out, Abba, Father. 
where you recognize your sonship, you understand the gift that you have received, that you are an heir to the throne. If so, would you just rejoice in that this morning? Would you press into your Father? See, we no longer come to him in fear. We come to him in confidence because of who we are in Christ. But maybe for you this morning, you don't have that. My challenge to you would be to repent and to receive the free gift of salvation so that you too can be adopted into his family. This morning, we're going to respond in song. Pastor Casey's down front. I'll be down front. If you need someone to pray with you, encourage you, talk to you about this relationship with the Lord, we'd be happy to do so. But you respond as the Lord leads. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.